This podcast is made possible by Vital Smarts, the Speak Up Experts. With more than 30 years of conversation research, three New York Times bestselling authors and over 3 million people trained, that's Vital Smarts. If you're struggling to hold a tough conversation in the office or at home, visit vitalsmarts.com.au slash DSTM to master your speak up skills and create an environment of accountability. Hi, welcome to a bonus episode of the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast. My name is Jane Neild. I'm the producer of the show and I am missing Caro and Corey this week too. Yes, they are taking a very well-earned post-footy season break. Caro and Corey will be back next week with a brand new episode. But for this week, I thought we'd revisit some of our favourite guests from some of those earlier episodes of the podcast. Author Jock Sarong, Jane Caro and the wonderful Annabelle Crabb. So to kick things off, in episode 63, he appears to be in it for nothing but kicks. Author Jock Sarong joined Caro and Corey and he led us on an expedition into the wilds of his novel Preservation, which had just been released, a dark tale of survival and horror set in the colonial Australia of 1797. So Jock Quota was number one, then the rules of backyard cricket, then on Java Ridge, which was a just a wonderful, wonderful book, and now Preservation. You've gone back into Australian history. We're sort of going to segue in and out of this, aren't we? Aren't we? But yeah, we, we can do whatever you want, Caro. Yeah. And we can talk Labradors too. We're, if you were a Labrador, I've got an aging Labrador. How old? Oh, he's, I reckon he's now twelve, but he seems older. Yeah, he's a bit like a great white. He's dark. Over the back, but quite white underneath. So is he black? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mine's a spring yeah. chicken compared to our two dogs. Yeah, Billy's um, nearly 15 and chocolate, but yeah, a lot of white underneath. Mm. But it's so lovely when they get in the water because they become young again. I don't know. Well, swimming is obviously their natural thing. And the other thing people often say, you know, you've got to get a puppy to keep them going when they're really old. we got a chicken and the two of them have just fallen <laughs> in love with each other. They are the best of mates. You might be able to do that at Port Ferry, a bit difficult in inner city <laughs> Melbourne. Well, they're chicken. both gluttons. <laughs> That's what they share. That's true. What That's happens true. when the chicken becomes a hen and gets all territorial when she's laying eggs? He gives her space. <laughs> oh, my daughter a good brought dog a chicken home from school once and it became a rooster and the crowing just drove us nuts. They oh. actually do cock-a-doodle-do at dawn every day. It's not just in sort of farmyard stories. <laughs> Jock, what made you delve back into this piece of Australian history? That Just very quickly, it, it opens in 1797. Yeah. Um, three castaways turn up at Sydney Cove um, completely emaciated, clearly something brutal and very evil has gone on. And it is the job of the governor of the day and his lieutenant, who has a very sick wife, who is a fascinating part of the story, to find out what's happened. Yeah, I um, I suppose I, I knew about the true story of the Sydney Cove for many years, and um, I had thought of it simply in terms of it being a survival story. And it's certainly that. Um, but for it to then become a good base for a novel, it needs a whole lot more. And in this case, um, there is a whole lot more to the story than just the survivors of a shipwreck. There's a lot about first contact with Aboriginal people. Um, there's a lot, I thought, about the landscape. And um, one of the three survivors kept a diary. And the diary's since been lost. But happily, um, it was transcribed or paraphrased by an Indian newspaper. 
And so we have a record of what happened on the walk, but it's a very, very skeletal record. There's a lot of important stuff missing. Um, and, and what it really brought home to me was that it was this extraordinary study in landscape, having to work out how to get across rivers, how to deal with rocky coasts and long stretches of sand and the terrors of not knowing what's in the bush. It, it's an easy assumption to make now that there are no large carnivores that are going to kill you, but um, there was no such understanding at the time. And there was a lot of myth-making about Aboriginal people and, and who they might have been. So those kind of unknowns were where the real interest was, as, as well as it being a shipwreck yarn. So well, it, it starts on, with Corey, se- 17, 17 survivors of this shipwreck, of this dodgy ship that leaves Calcutta called the Sydney Cove, which in itself is a rather cheeky name because that's it's not, not really this, called the Sydney yeah. Cove right, Not all. really the Sydney Cove. I think of it as vanity plates. <laughs> it's a marketing exercise. <laughs> yeah. It was, and it is carrying a stash of illegal rum as well. There are 17 survivors and then three are found at the end on the beach um, in terrible condition by fishermen who have fished up from Sydney and they've seen them on the foreshore. But these chaps have walked from where we think is the southernmost point of Victoria. Would that be right, roughly right? And then yeah. up the coast or up the, and certainly up the 90-mile beach and yeah. all of that coastline yeah, of southern that's right. New South Wales. And They probably started somewhere near Lakes Entrance um, and they got as far as oh, about 40 miles south of Sydney. So the, the walk, depending how they did it, is something like 600 miles. So what I loved about there's so many things you love about it, but just on the uh, the the indigenous characters and their involvement, it, you presented a bit like Kate Grenville did with the Secret River. You allow us to imagine Australia at the time of uh, white European settlers arriving, and the curiousness of the indigenous folk, and not. Everyone, indeed, in your in your story, they're not really head hunting cannibal. You know, they're not they're not that sort of native, if you like, which is what they had preconceived ideas of. You know, because they'd met this sort of indigenous person in Africa or India or wherever, and they thought, oh well, these these black fellas must be the same. Yeah, and um, of the three survivors who tell their stories, they have three different understandings of who those people are. And Srinivas, who's a a young Bengali boy, um, approaches them on on very honest terms. He's curious about them, they're curious about him, and he has no preconceived notions at all. Clark, who's a trader, is much more cynical and tends to think of the Aboriginal people he meets as one amorphous mass. In other words, they're just the natives. Um, Fig is pure evil and Fig will um, tolerate people and treat them well insofar as it suits his particular ends. If you look at it from the other end, if you look at it from the Aboriginal end, seeing these men walking through the bush must have been profoundly strange because they're travelling in a way that there's no indication Aboriginal people travelled, walking straight from south to north across their territories. They would have wondered at why these people were making such a ham-fisted job of surviving when it shouldn't have been that hard. What we know from Clark's diary is that um, at some points in that walk, and probably for the majority of that walk, they were looked after by Aboriginal people. And at some stage it's gone wrong because at least two of them have been speared. And um, if you look at Clark's injuries, he's been speared through both hands, which would suggest something ritual, um, not uh, a skirmish. So what's Clark done that's caused that? He doesn't say anything about it in what survives of his diary. Um, so there's room to speculate about what went on there. And boy, do you speculate. And then you introduce <laughs> us to Mr. Fig, who you just described as pure evil. 
Where did he come from? Well, Fig's interesting. Carol hasn't quite finished the story yet. It gets darker and darker, doesn't it? He's promised me it's not quite as devastating as on Java Ridge, (laughs) which is one of the more devastating, but I suppose fitting endings. But Fig is obviously, uh, is he a real character? No. um, The third survivor was a guy called John Bennett. And um, just in story making terms, I didn't like that as a name for my evil guy. So uh, I initially called him Lamprey because I liked the idea of this parasitic fish attaching himself to a host. Um, and then um, there, were, <laughs> there were some discussions about that and we decided that was a bit of an overcooked metaphor. So he became Fig. Um, but what's interesting about Fig as a character is I had this very strong sense of who he would be, that he would appear out of nowhere, that he would attach himself to the group, he would cause havoc but for no particular um, material end. He's not really in it for the money. Um, he's not in it for political power. He appears to be in it for nothing but kicks. And uh, then at the other end of the story, um, I don't think it's any spoiler to say that he vanishes out of the other end of the story. And um, I then, in the middle of writing this, I was reading Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, and he has this character called Judge Holden, who is exactly the same character. He is found sitting naked in the desert, and he's a seven-foot hairless man, and he joins this group of men wandering across the prairie and he doesn't appear to age and um, then there's Professor Woland in The Master and Margarita Um, these characters recur all the time in fiction and and they're a bit of an archetype and when I said this to um, my editor Mandy Brett I said you know I think I've sort of latched onto something that repeats a lot with this fig guy and she said oh yeah that's a dibbick and I must have looked at her blankly, and she said... As I am looking at you now. <laughs> a dibbic is apparently an ancient Jewish tradition, which is almost a pagan tradition, of this kind of Satan incarnate figure who appears in people's endeavours, causes mayhem, and then vanishes again, um, and never quite ages. And, and the way that Bulgakov used the dibbic in Master and Margarita was Satan comes to Moscow in the middle of the Soviet regime, and... That was written in 1940. It was censored until 1967. And then two of the very early people who picked it up were Jagger and Richards, and they wrote Sympathy for the Devil. So these things sort of wind in and out of art everywhere you look. Um, And that was why I just, I felt so drawn to this fig guy, you know, I had to have it in there. I was fascinated by the the whole Bass Strait references, you know, this, and the maps at the start of the book where, where it's made clear that at that point there's still only theories about this body of water that does or does not connect Tasmania to mainland Australia or to Sydney Cove, really. They're the two places they know about. So that wasn't known, that, that was all about to happen, was it, in 1797? Yeah, that's right. So um, at that stage... You have to get to the end of the book, Caro. <laughs> But just in pure historic terms. Yeah, I I have this idea that Bass Strait, and in particular that little group of islands called the Furno Islands on the east side, um, have a really outsized role in Australian history, in Victorian history and in Tasmanian history particularly, because that body of water obviously changes the way you go about shipping. Um, These survivors found seals in enormous numbers. That led to a sealing industry, which led to a whole lot of just complete lawlessness in those islands. Um, John Batman coming to the Yarra is a product of the sealing industry. The founding of Launceston comes from the sealing industry. So all of these things sort of radiated out of those islands. And then later on, 
when George Augustus Robinson um, gathered up what were thought to be the last of the Tasmanian Aborigines, he took them to Flinders Island, which is one of the islands in that group, and, and formed this settlement called Waibalina. And out of Waibalina, we have the tragedy of Truganini. And, um, you know, so much of the history we understand as being Australian history comes from this bunch of granite boulders. That, it, look, it, it's a wonderful book. Um, and it's quite ironic, Corrie, that we've both been reading at a time that on the weekend we went to a performance called Hellship, which is a one-man show by Michael Veach, which is the story of the Ticonderoga. yeah, and it was yep. the, the book. He, he has a book by the same name, yeah. which is set in the sort of eighteen fifties, yeah. and then it, it's an it's an old man, an old ship surgeon, looking back in around nineteen ten, nineteen fifteen, ancestor, great great grandfather, yep. and he performed at a quarantine station at the very very end of the Mornington Peninsula on Saturday night, so. I mean, completely different story, but another tr- ship tragedy. There was evil in that story, although not quite as much evil, although it was a lot of people crammed into a very unsafe ship that made it all the way from the UK. Um, people from Scotland and Ireland basically duped into coming aboard. Then the typhus epidemic, and it was the first ever ship, in fact, that was forced to land a quarantine station and not allowed to come to Melbourne. They had to stay there for six weeks. But And there I, we were in, in the officers' quarters, the old whatever the old building was that we were in, and the winds blowing around us, and we're listening to Michael Veach talk about the typhus ship and yet another passenger thrown overboard because they've died. And and then I went home and read a few more chapters. Yeah, <laughs> and, and at the end of the show, the they of, said, just like, put your hands up I'm if so, you're, if you're related if, to a... Um, survivors of the and a lot of people in the audience put their hand up. Right. Anyway, and I, by by sheer coincidence, I'm really keen to read this book because when I um, was at uni, I had a job in the Point Nepean Reserve there with the National Parks, and I remember at the time they were talking about how the Ticonderoga survivor. Survivors deceased had been buried on the edge of the beach, and that um, gradually the beach has been eaten away, and and they were starting to poke out of the sand, and they'd had to find them all and relocate them further in. I don't know when really? that happened, but they had to move the whole graveyard. Oh, well, that's hundreds still, that's, of people. that's now set off all the children of the peninsula going to <laughs> search for bones. Remember how your mother said they did the year that um, we, we Harold, all, Harold Holt we were went all, missing. We were all told <laughs> to look. The, the, the the parent, don't you love it, Jock? The parents told the kids in the summer of 1967, look, just go hunting out there, you know, go for the day. You might find the Prime Minister. (laughs) You might find something. Um, Jock, before we skip on, I just wanted to, uh, you know, I mean, of course, compliment you on the book because I found it absolutely riveting and and quite terrifying too. But like Tim Winton, you have an innate uh, sense of the sea and the ocean. And of course, you're a surf writer. And Tim Winton, as we know, is a surfer too. And I think this is just a, a fabulous example of how you can make sea life. And even when, uh, even when the men have, um, have, have, like the, the ship has collapsed and the men have make their way, you know, to land, you still have a sense of the sea there. It's like a character in the book. You can hear it. You can almost smell it. How did the surf writing prepare you for this book? Um, it's been a long road, I think. I started off writing about surfing because I, I wanted to be a magazine writer and, and it was the only thing I really knew a lot about. Um, and then once I had written for surfing magazines for a number of years, I, I became interested in writing fiction. And um, so I suppose in writing Quota, again, I was using the sea because it was a thing I felt like I, I had ready to hand. Um, Java Ridge starts in a similar way in that I what I wanted to write 
It was the first time I, I suppose I tried to directly write fiction about surfing. And I wrote this little scene of a girl surfing a tropical wave. And once I'd written it, I, I started to think about, okay, who is she and um, what's she doing on this coral reef? And at the time, um, I was very angry about asylum seeker issues. I still am. Um, and I was thinking about those things a lot. And it became tied into this kind of asylum seeker narrative and the idea of two boats meeting at sea. Um, so that the, the initial picture of a girl surfing um, became this much bigger story. And I suppose um, when I write, I, I use the ocean a lot as part of my routine. I go surfing a lot or I'll swim or I'll just walk or do something. Um, so it's always working in with the thinking of, of the writing and, and often um, the, the ideas that I have about what to write next are, are formed sitting on the ocean. Um, the two things are completely inseparable to me and I'm not quite sure how I'd go if I had to go inland and write something. I'm not sure what would happen. Well, you don't romanticise it though. I mean, in Quota, your first novel, that the description of that, when when we do go to, I, I assume we're around Port Ferry, Warrnambool, somewhere around there, um, in that, that awful scene on the boat. I mean, it's, mm. it's, quite, it's very evocative, but there's nothing romantic about um, being on the coast in that particular novel, is there? No, I think that's right. And, and one of the disservices that surfers have done to themselves writing about surfing is that we're constantly trivialising what the ocean represents to people. Um, and you only need to go to societies who, where people are landlocked or people have to use the sea as a means of subsistence and not fun to realise that it's a much graver thing a lot of the time. Um, and, and to me, a lot of the interest lies in that kind of thinking. So, you know, in Java Ridge, you've got two boats. One boat is full of Australian surfers for whom it is a playground. And the other boat is full of people from a landlocked nation who are petrified of what's going on around them. Um, and so when they wind up on the same piece of reef, you, you can really make that contrast between the two societies and the way they look at the ocean. I love the way you write about sport, and I know we, we do have to move on, Corrie, because we're going to briefly touch on the state election, but uh, the rules of backyard cricket and that rather awful, sinister story of match-fixing, really, as well as being mm. a, a brilliant family saga and a great story about two brothers, but... The the one the line that was so savage to me and it was out of quota was where you talk about um, junior football and I wondered if you had a bad experience <laughs> because you know it's my line. Well, I, I can't. It's brilliantly written and I read it out to my husband when I read it, but it basically says what a miserable miserable time <laughs> the, the the character the lawyer character has as a junior footballer. Right. Is that right? Do you remember that oh, early on about, and you know, he was never good enough, and it was just awful and dirty and miserable and oh, pretty and much jo my experience. <laughs> so you were thinking Jock's the wrong former lawyer, and well, now he's just venting on the page. Well, I wondered whether you His know, junior as, football as a kid, you, you know, you didn't have much talent. Or no, you I was terrible. <laughs> I was terrible at footy. And what's worse, um, because I carry the surname I do, there was uh, a Collingwood Premiership player named Sarong, Billy Sarong. And when I first moved to the country, there was this, I think they saw the surname coming. So I was getting a lot of phone calls initially about, do you want to come down to training, mate? 
and I would politely say to them, I'm terrible at football, I hate pain, I'm no use to you. That's all right, mate, just come down for a bit of a kick. But, but you almost diss the whole industry around it. And the way <laughs> kids are pushed, and unless you're really good, it's, it's actually a terrible experience, a, a miserable existence. Yeah, well, if, if you're no good, you have to play in the morning. And if you're playing in the morning and it's July and, <laughs> and it's raining hard and your fingers are numb and the football hurts, and yeah, it's not a lot of fun. I think any sport no. played in good conditions is a lovely experience, but not that. But you I, are a footy fan. Fan, aren't you? Very much so. Yeah, yeah, love it. Love it to watch. And indeed, um, that scene of the football match in quota, um, I wrote by going to the local footy and just watching what was going on around me. And indeed, a concussed guy did walk into a door jam the day I went. Um, and <laughs> we shouldn't laugh. <laughs> no, it was terrible. Um, but I, I love particularly country footy and the atmosphere around it and oh, what and, it does and, for and a community. Ba- and boundary politics too. Yeah. On the boundary, what, you know, the CWA stall versus the canteen versus... And the honking of the parked cars when there's a goal. Um, (laughs) And it's a great thing for a community. You know, it's a really big part of the town I live in, and I'm sure it is for lots and lots of country communities. Yeah, there's a great beauty to it as well as the rest of it. Well, just back on on the Java Ridge, as you know, Jock, because you were, well, you said you were very pleased. Maybe you were just saying it, but we at the bookshop, that was our 2017 book of the year, Carol. I don't know whether you realise that. So what we do is we look at all the fiction and non-fiction books that we've loved and we pick one that we think is really topical, one that um, we've really recommended to customers and they've come back and given us amazing feedback. That's that's probably the biggest criteria. Sales is, is part of it as well. But, the, you know, this year it's the Tim Winton, the Shepherd's Hut. But last year it was you. And, um, and of course, we didn't have a bouquet of flowers or anything to give you really. Just no award. Just, you know, you got it. But... <laughs> Corrie, another election, another bunch of promises, another series of stories about minders and how they totally managed to take away any form of real character or personality from all the major candidates. I don't know if either of you read the article in Good Weekend. Um, it was in the age, well, Good Weekend last Saturday, Sydney Morning Herald as well, about the Wentworth by-election. And this, they called him Nigel, and it was basically he was the sort of fig of the story. He was the absolute. I was trying to work out his Nigel. Was that his real name? Well, they, I think they said Nigel, not his real name, but he was a guy who minded David Sharma, who they described as someone who seemed like a, a lovely and interesting man, but who was constantly taken away from the yeah. action. And it just from it made me because my husband's a political journalist, and it's quite funny because every day. It's sort of trying to find out where they're going that day and they never tell tell the media where they're going till sort of 10 minutes before and often the media don't get there in time and when they get there, they're grumpy. And It's so pathetically run, this campaign, It's just on so many levels. And, you know, we have talked for two weeks about early voting, but again, you know, what if something absolutely horrific came out this week about either Matthew Guy or Daniel Andrews and it's too late, you've already voted? In a Luke Foley sense. What? Exactly. Yes. What What is wrong with? I mean, I know. Vote absentee on the day, voting. everyone. Vote on the day. Anyway. Caro and Jock, just super quick. I thought for the purposes of research for this program, I would just you know actually try and engage with Victorian state politics this week. The first four stories that came up on my feed: African crime hits Labor seats. That was the Australian. No surprise there with the headline. The Age said Liberal Party backs independent candidate who says homosexuals can be cured. And then the third one, which was the Herald Sun, key Labor rorts witness helps police wrap up evidence brief as the official public prosecutions considers where the charges should be laid over the rorts, whatever. And then the Guardian said, Daniel Andrews says Green have a toxic cultural problem around women. 
where's the policies? This is election week. I know. Where and are the policies? Where's free, the analysis of tampons. the policies? I mean, talk about insulting. Look, Where, where's the tra- transport issue resolved? Where's the big leadership? Where's the vision? Where's the goals? Where's the, honestly? What interests me really? the most is whether and they've you know, got to do better. My than new this. best friend Corrie Anthony Green, who I've been telling you about, who I met in Sydney a few weeks ago. You know, the ABC yep. guy who just knows everything about oh, elections. He's, he's fa- fabulous. He just he flapped around Caro like you know she was such a star because <laughs> totally he's a Sydney swat. He's a Sydney Sydney Swans fan. <laughs> anyway, he reckons that Daniel Andrews will win and it's all going to be decided on that sort of Frankston sort of corridor. Yep. But it'll be interesting to see how 3AW and Neil Mitchell, who's clearly found it very frustrating because I think he had his, he's got his first interview with a Labor minister this week and who has not, Daniel Andrews won't speak to him and they've had a massive falling out, whether he and also the Herald, well, the Herald Sun to a much bigger degree are going to be able to influence this election because if they do, Matthew Guy will certainly if the Herald Sun have any say in it, and the Australian, Matthew Guy or Robert in, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But hasn't it always been the way that state politics in Victoria have been a feedback loop between the two major parties and the Herald Sun? That's, that seems to me to be the way yep. the elections run. Except that if they tried, they did everything they could to kill off Andrews last time and it didn't work. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't think it's going to work this time well, either. Well, look, whoever, whoever is the winner on the weekend, we want some good leadership. We want vision. We want big picture stuff, not all this ridiculousness. You wouldn't be in a swinging seat down at Port Ferry, would you, Jock? It's uh, probably it is blue deep, ribbon. deep conservative. Oh, yeah, yeah, I would have yeah, thought yeah. that. Gigantic margin. Why did you move to Port Ferry? <laughs> not for the politics. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we, we know that you like to write by the coast, but... There's um, lots of coastal places. I, it's a really long and wandering story, but the short version is that uh, when I initially graduated from law school, I worked in a commercial firm in the CBD, and I was bored rigid. I was in a glass box, and I was producing little six-minute bits of my life for someone else, and um, I almost immediately started hatching an escape plan. And in my case, the escape plan was, I thought, okay, I'll give law one more go, and I'll do it by finding a place on the coast where I can surf and where I can find a job in a little law office. And I figured that in order for there to be enough law offices in a town, there needed to be a county court. So I got a map of where the county courts are. They're on the coast. You really planned. And I did. <laughs> and then I pulled the ripcord. And... Um, it turns out there's very few options if you apply those criteria to have good surf and to have a county court. And um, Warrnambool was one. Uh, probably another was Geelong because it's got Torquay nearby. Um, so I, with my then girlfriend, now wife and mother of our four children, I uh, drove out to Warrnambool, found a place to get a job and then um, sort of as an afterthought turned up in Port Ferry looking for a house to rent. And there was this little cottage, beautiful little bluestone cottage that had a for lease sign out the front. And it was such a great house that I pretty much smoked the tyres getting around to the real estate agent to say, please, 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 please just hold it. I'm going to go and get some cash. And the woman behind the counter, I, in my memory, she's filing her nails, but I couldn't say whether she really was or not. <laughs> but, oh, that's the, that's the writer's imagination. No, I think it might be. <laughs> but she said, honey, it's been on the market for two years. You can take your time. <laughs> and so that's where I wound up living. And you're still there? You're still uh, in the Bluestone house? Funnily enough, I've, I've been back to Melbourne, I've been to Western Australia, and we've come back to Port Ferry, and I'm living about 80 metres from the original house. And Jock, are you writing? When did you start writing full-time and give up the law? Uh, that was 2013. With and little kids, that's very brave. Yeah, uh, well, either that or very ill-considered. <laughs> you're very quick. <laughs> Corrie told me about this book you'd envisaged when you spoke at her shop last year. 
Right. Yeah, You'd already started that. researching it. And you turned it around really quickly. Yeah, I, the last few have been quick, and, and that's because the ideas have been very definite in my head. They've been very well formed when they've turned up. Um, I feel like this time around, um, the ideas are floating around like butterflies, and I'm having a little more trouble catching them. So this, this could be a slower process. That's author Jock Sarong. With Caro and Corrie, in episode 63 of Don't Shoot the Messenger, he appears to be in it for nothing but kicks. In episode 73, Hags, Crones, Witches and Mothers-in-Law, Caro and Corrie's guest was Jane Caro. They explored some of the issues addressed in Jane's wonderful book, Accidental Feminists, that had just been released, including the spectre of poverty and homelessness confronting older women especially, the myth of work-life balance and our attitudes towards women in power. Jane, I love this book because it comes at a time uh, in the lives of our generation, the three of us around the table, and I would call us actually Jermaine's daughters. So Jermaine Greer, you know, is probably 15, 20 years older than us. And we came along and we were beneficiaries in so many ways, not just in the workforce, but um, in many areas of our lives. And so your book focuses on us because we became the accidental feminists. We didn't expect to be. We thought we could have it all. We were told we could have it all. And in many ways we have. Um, you've divided the chapters into most interesting um, titles, which gives people an, a, a sort of an idea of the stereotypes that you're challenging. One chapter, for example, hags, crones, witches, and mothers-in-law. Being a mother-in-law, I can. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm <laughs> all of those. <laughs> but you maintain that the women who were born at the tail end of the baby boomer generation and into that early 1960, 61, 62. So women, in other words, who are now in their 50s and 60s, and you say they've changed everything but they didn't grow up to be revolutionary and that we are the first generation of women in the history of the world who have mostly earned their own money for most of their lives. Um, so most interesting, what set you on the course of this book? Well, the first thing was um, thinking about that, that, that. I mean, obviously, working class women, women who, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons we're doing it tough, have worked for wages throughout history. But we were the first whole cohort of women where you weren't pitied if you had to go to work. It was actually seen as an aspiration that you would go out there and get yourself a job and, you know, contribute to the public sphere as well as the private one. That was the huge revolutionary change. And it has changed the world, basically. So I was kind of thinking about that and thinking, you know, isn't this terrific, aren't we clever? And then I heard that shocking statistic, which probably both of you have heard as well, that um, women over 55 are the fastest growing group amongst the homeless. And it really, I thought to myself, how do those two things possibly fit together? That you've got this, you know, huge change where we're earning wages, you know, pay packets with our names on them, for goodness sake, for most of our lives. And yet... Poverty in old age is such a, a high risk for my generation of women. And um, I wrote an article about it for ABC Online called Women Over 50, A Tale of Two Fates. And um, I got a phone call after it appeared, and it was from Louise Adler from MUP. And she said, I've read your article. It's a book. I want you to write it. And here I am, having written the book. Um, and it, it's been terrific because... You know, obviously, if you write a book, you have to go on the journey of answering your own question. How could this have happened? And do you, do you, in your own mind, offer some solutions? I mean, I know you do, but what do you tell us about the solutions? Well, I think there are lots of solutions, but I think in a way you have to know why it happened before you can understand the logic of the solutions. Yep. So, I mean, in the end, I think we have to, uh, 
it, it's clear to see that it is this ingrained belief that certainly my generation were brought up with and I think I think currently girls are still brought up with this idea that it's women's caring responsibilities that are their first duty, that their first duty is really to be selfless, to put other people first, you know, all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, we did that. Yes, we went into the workforce, but then we took time out to have children. Well, what happens when you take time out to have children and look after them? You're not getting paid. You're not getting super. You're not, you know, you're not amassing uh, savings for later on. Then you go back into the workforce, but you go back part time. You go back low paid. You go back often in in relatively insecure occupations. Our generation traded, and we didn't know we were doing this, but I think this is what we did. We traded flexibility for security in our old age, because flexibility suited us when we were um, taking on the lion's share of the parenting as well as carrying a paid work um, responsibility. And then we, you know continued to work part-time. Sometimes our marriages collapsed and often women were the ones who did the leaving in um, relationships because for the first time earning your own money, even if it's not a lot of money, gives you agency. You can decide if you're in a lousy relationship, I want to get out of this relationship. But because you're a, your first duty is to care and to be selfless, a lot of women did things like saying, well, you know, I won't push on the finances because I'm taking the children and, you know, he doesn't want me to leave and I feel guilty. So, you know, they sort of did themselves down a bit. Often they got the house and the kids and that was about it. And then just when we got to the point in our late 40s, early 50s, where the kids are more grown, they don't need us to be home after school, etc., etc. We've got energy, we've got experience, we've got education, we've outperformed men and boys in education for over 100 years. Um, you know, we've got everything to offer. We're deemed too old because the average age of retirement, in inverted commas, I don't think a lot of it's voluntary, um, in Australia for women is 52. So what happens then? We, there's research in the book that shows that women over 50, older women, are the least likely to get a call back if, if they go for a job. So it's extremely hard to get employed once you're that age. And if you're from low-skilled, you know, a kind of peripatetic record of employment because of caring responsibilities, you're stuffed. And that's basically what's happened. So there are a lot of solutions. Some of them we could do now. You know, every new development should have affordable housing in it. We need to help those men and women who find themselves facing homelessness in old age now. That's urgent. We can't leave them living out of their cars or, you know, on the street corners. Um, and there's lots of suggestions in the book as to how we could do that, many of them from um, Susan Ryan, who was the uh, just past yep. age discrimination commissioner. But I think one of the fundamental things we have to do is stop thinking about that awful phrase, work-life balance, because that seems to indicate that work is somehow separate from life, as if they're two different things. And of course they're not. Work is just one part of life. And work isn't just paid work. There's all sorts of work that adults need to do. Childcare, domestic work, and paid work. And you know what? We should share them equally with everyone who's an adult, not say women do three jobs and men do one. No, 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 no. And then you add share into it. that um, for people of our age, in many cases, looking after ageing parents. Correct. That's the other thing that and happens. And the men often, I mean, there are, as you say in your book, there are wonderful examples of wonderful men. So I'm, I don't mean but to generalise. But the stats are low. Yeah. And it, it, it tends to be the women who take on board all of that stuff, whether it's just doing the shopping for your mum who's living at home or whether it's actually looking after 
parents who have dementia who are in a home and you have to go there every day or every week. And it can be parents-in-law as well. It's not just your own parents. Often it's women who take the responsibility for their husband's parents. So yes, we get squeezed at either end and that means again coming out of the workforce or reducing hours, therefore reducing the amount of income you're making. And unfortunately because of the way we set up the superannuation system, that has a direct impact on the amount of money you've got for your own old age. But there has been a shift there legally. Sorry, legally hasn't there because well, I know a lot of women who are, when they're doing their divorce settlements, are, are taking future superannuation from their husband. Oh, yes. That's which has been a, a good thing for women. A very good thing. Came in, though, in 2002 yep. and for de facto, 2009. So there'd be still an awful lot of women of our age group who may have divorced and separated before then who didn't... Um, get that any access to their husbands. There's also the massive cultural shift. I mean, I've always worked. I love I love my job. Um, I'm doing a little bit less now, but I'm still very, very busy. And yet uh, th- there is a view and I subscribe to it. And whether it's cultural or whether it's real or whether it's just force of habit over many years, we're multitaskers and men really aren't. Only because we don't expect them to be, and it's time we expected them to be. Because unfortunately, that multitasking thing for women is one of the reasons why we end up with, on average, uh, retiring with half the super of men and fully one third of us with no super at all. The, the price of being expected to multitask is too high. Jane, in the book, you mentioned something that really resonated with me. There were lots of points in your book where I became quite angry on my own behalf, looking yes. back on my life. It made me angry researching it. So this is a this is a, an anecdote that both of you will completely, completely be on board with. So in, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago uh, when my kids were small and I'd just become a single mother and I was an executive at the age and the juggle, as you can imagine, was immense and to be working on the news desk and to get home at a reasonable time and all of that sort of brouhaha. One of my colleagues who was also a managing editor, so same level of me, he was a single father of two but his children lived with his wife interstate but when they would come to visit, the whole thing was oh, he has to go home early because he's got the kids. Oh, isn't that lovely? You know. And even <laughs> women in the office would say, oh, he's such a good dad and, but no one ever said are you okay? Look, why don't you leave half an hour early because you've got to get the kids from crash or wherever you have to get them. There was never any empathy toward me, whereas to the man who was doing the parenting, it was, oh, gosh, isn't he lovely? Do you think that's changed or do you think that still exists? still exists. I I mean, I experienced it myself. My husband wanted to do more with the children than he was able to because of the kind of job that he had, and he got very stressed about because I got fired when I was four months pregnant, so we lost my income. So he got very stressed about keeping his job because it was the only income, and this is, I think, quite a common story. Were you fired because you were pregnant? I was fired because we lost a major account, but um, as I was pregnant, I remember saying to my boss when he said to me, we're going to have to let you go, I said, you've just fired the only person who can't get another job because you can't, you know, you've got a great big pregnant belly in front of you. It does you down when you go for another job. (laughs) Um, And... um, so I, you know, I remember being infuriated all the way through our children's lives, our daughters, two daughters, that if my husband did anything, if he changed a nappy, if he turned up to a school concert in, um, you know, working hours, people would say to me, oh, my God, he's so amazing. What an incredible father. And he would get praised literally for doing anything. And I, who was, you know, at home most of the time, then part time, then always at the school concerts during working hours, um, 
I never got praise for doing any of those things. In fact, I only ever got criticism if I failed to do something. And I think um, that is still the truth of it. And this is this idea that for women, nurturing and caring is our duty. Therefore, you don't get praise for doing your duty. But with men, we th- see it as, oh, they're going above and beyond. I draw a parallel in the book, actually, with how we regard public and private schools. So if private schools, for example, take on a, a handful of very disadvantaged advantage kids through a scholarship, we all go, oh, they're amazing, you know, wow, their generosity knows no bounds. They get extra funding, by the way. Um, but public schools who may have, uh, you know, the majority cohort, very disadvantaged kids, we look down our nose at them and if something goes wrong, we criticise and we never praise them. And I think that gives us an indication of, A, the expectations we have of um, the different systems and of the different roles of mother and father, but it also tells us something about status and hierarchy and how we demand less of those who have high status and more of those who have low status. And I think we have to accept that women and mothers still have lower status than men and fathers. But to be the, to be the devil's advocate, and <clears throat> excuse me, I've worked at the age for the, over 20 years now, and as you know, Corrie, things have changed. I mean, there are so many men who have equal parenting rights and would it be fair to say that there is also a section, a big section of society who slightly looks down on those men as well as praising oh, yes. them? Oh, no, the peer, the peer pressure. When my husband, um, you know, wanted to have time out and wanted to spend more, he was mocked and uh, ridiculed yep. by men he worked with. And indeed, when one of my um, son-in-laws wanted to take five days off after their first child was born, his boss said to him, what do you need to do that for? So there is still yep. this idea that haven't you got a she, the baby's got a mother? What is what do you need? This weird idea that fathers just donate their sperm and their pay, and that's the end of the job. <laughs> and you're looking for a more equal society, Jane. One another point just to skip on. There are so many things that we could talk about in this book, but another thing I wanted to talk about is the role of the woman when she becomes the <clears> boss <throat> and how she's perceived by her colleagues in society. And you use the example, and I think it's a really good one of Julia Gillard, who mm. when she was deputy PM and also Minister for Education and two or three other portfolios from memory, everybody said, you know, she's capable, she's a good organiser, she runs a great meeting, she's loyal to Kevin Terrific Rudd. negotiator. Terrific negotiator, all of these things. The very second that she becomes Prime Minister, through means which party colleagues have and other politicians have been doing for years... Gee, we've just watched it happen about three times in front of our faces, <laughs> haven't we? She, but she's, she's, you know, how dare you stab the leader in the back? You're a witch. Yeah. Um, We have this ridiculous... I I wrote an article, um, it's not referenced in the book, but I wrote an article for the Saturday paper after the whole Hillary Clinton thing because uh, I was really upset by that chant, you know, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. And so I did some investigation into how we regard female leaders. And across the Western, across the whole world, actually, over the last 50 years, only 10% of world leaders have been female. So 90% male, 10% female. And of those 10% who've been female, fully 25%, one quarter, have been accused of corruption, uh, impeached for corruption, uh, defeated under the stench of corruption, or actually jailed for corruption. Now, do we think that it's likely that 25% of the tiny number of women who have reached high office are really, really more corrupt? Are we more corrupt than and, the blokes? Yeah, I was going to say, does this suggest that the men are not? <laughs> exactly. Or does it suggest that as soon as a woman seeks 
powerful herself. As soon as she is seen as ambitious, she is seen as a bitch. And also there's something illegitimate about her. That is so kind of anti the way we think women should be. You think about it as we're supposed to put other people's needs first. They love us as a two IC. They hate us as the IC. Successful women have to be very tough. The word tough is used all the time. But they don't. Even when they're not very tough, it doesn't matter what they are. They're seen as somehow not right. When Hillary Clinton was standing, I remember if anyone dared to put out a positive message about her, particularly on Twitter, they would always start it with these words. I know she's not perfect, but... And I remember thinking there's never been a perfect candidate for the American presidency and there never will be. And if we expect the women who are standing for that office to be perfect, then no women, woman will ever be the president because that is an unrealistic standard. So how do we cope as women commentators when, because I personally was disappointed in many aspects of Julia's prime ministership. But she's a human being. Oh, I know that. I know that. But to me, she, we never saw the real Julia. She was immediately, I mean, I know the faceless men I think we might be seeing rather too much of the real Scott Morrison. Well, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. He's got bigger issues. But I wish that she had been prepared to be a bit braver and a bit more show herself because I heard her make speeches and she was a wonderful speech maker. But she never, she was too, she was captured by the machine really, wasn't she? She never really did a lot of the things I think she would have loved to have done. Do you know what I think about Julia Gillard? I think she was a perfectly good Prime Minister. Mm. I think she was probably better than the average Australian Prime Minister has been, not as good as the great ones and not as bad as the terrible ones. And that's perfectly fine. I think we have to drop, and I think it is a sexist burden that women carry, that somehow before we deserve to get high mm. office, we have to be better than, we have to be special, we have to somehow come along and be terrific in every area. We're going to be just as ordinary, flawed, um, and, yep. and disastrous as a lot of the blokes. My mother always used to say, I love this, she used to say, we will only have true equality when there are as many mediocre women in positions of power as there are mediocre men. Julia Gillard was better than mediocre. But yeah, she had lots of things she did really badly. It's also terribly hard to be the first of anything because people are giving you all this advice and a lot of it's contradictory. You mustn't alienate them. You mustn't say this. You mustn't do that. You mustn't be too shrill. You mustn't be too strong. You know, oh, Oh, you can just imagine. I Look, I disagreed with Julia Gillard on education absolutely fundamentally. I thought she was a very poor education minister. I thought she was a much better prime minister. But she was very unfairly judged. It didn't matter what she did. She was criticised for it. I think in, in my sphere that I work in, which is AFL, um, they've repeatedly made some really bad female appointments. They've also made some very good ones. Mm. But there have been a couple in recent years which have been poor. And it's difficult to criticise them. You do get... You do get lent on a bit. Yeah. What do you mean by the sisterhood? <clears throat> there isn't a sisterhood. No, no, well, no, well, no, more, more by the but men who, who say. Cri- but who criticises you for criticising the women? Senior executives at the AFL, give her a break for God's sake. I mean, you of all people, why are you criticising you? I yeah, mean, which is unfair because everybody it should be a yeah. level playing field and yeah. everybody should be judged on their performance. Yes, yeah. The the, the woman Trisha Squires, who's been put in at the head of the Tasmanian AFL. I mean, I, I think there's been some really disappointing aspects of her appointment. Ditto Dorothy Hisgrove, an executive who is now gone, and I I, I think. I think that is a problem as well. So we I mean, should be allowed to say that. Well, that's true, but Jane makes a good point. I think um, 
when when you make women appointments in these men's worlds and positions of power, it's the men always say, "Oh, you have to get this one right because if she fails, it's going to be a disaster." We tried a woman once; they were awful. We're never doing it again. Oh my God, how many bad <clears throat> men have run all sorts of things, including countries and world wars? But nobody ever says, "Well, we've tried men; they were useless. We're not They're, having them again." <laughs> it's very interesting to see what's happening with the Democrat nominations in the U.S. for prep for a president. All the women putting up their hands, and mm. quite different women from Kamala Harris through to Elizabeth Warren, mm. and they are really the Democrat uh, branch, like r- grassroots. I don't know about the hierarchy, but the grassroots is certainly really trying not to focus on. They're trying so hard not to focus on this gender issue, which is something they tried to do a bit with Hillary. Like, first woman president, you know, come on, everybody, get on board with this. It's impossible to ignore it. Unfortunately, it's the same as Obama was the first black president. You know... <laughs> The fact is, there's been 45 men in suits. One of them was a bit different because he was black. That was great. But whoever... Whatever woman is the first, she will be the first. And it's, we, can, we can't pretend that isn't so. And we can't pretend that there isn't a difference with that. Because it's not that women have to be better than men or nicer or more deserving or any of that sort of thing. It's simply that we live different lives from men. We have different life experiences. And we need women at all of the decision-making tables. Because one of the reasons that so many older women are ending up, you know, facing living out of their car is because there was no women at the table when the superannuation system was designed. There were no women all the way through saying, hang on guys, that isn't going to work for us and here are the reasons why. And no women are bought, bought, on a lot of boards who are saying, that particular candidate who was the 55-year-old woman for this CEO's job, I really believe in... I, I, I think we should need to listen to her message. I think she could take on this job. And also, we know that if you've only got the one woman on the board or the one woman in the situation, it's really impossible for them to make a difference. You have to have... um a number. You have to have three or... You need three. You know, yeah, you need three. What do three. they say? One is token, two is a conspiracy, yeah. three, three is When you start to normalise yeah. yeah. But even when you only have one, I mean, my favourite example of the difference that having a woman at the, uh, you know, in the, in the room where the decisions are made with power makes is Queen Victoria. Because when uh, chloroform and ether were invented, doctors said, oh, this is a boon for birthing women because, you know, um, we can save lives if they don't get exhausted with the pain and the and all of this stuff and the adrenaline kicking in, stopping labour. Um, and the, the church said, oh, no, 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 no. It is ordained by God that women must suffer in the pangs of childbirth to pay back the sin of Eve, tempting Adam with the apple. I mean, for goodness <laughs> sake, people, um, that we can believe this shit is really revealing. Um and thankfully, for, we've moved on now. Yeah, <laughs> but fortunately, oh, some people haven't. Some people haven't. Um, fortunately, the head of the um, Church of England at that time was a birthing mother of nine. Eventually, she was about to have a seventh child, Queen Victoria, and she basically said, "Sod off, grab the ether and the chloroform, and made it acceptable for pain relief in childbirth." Now, that is why we need women at all decision-making tables because they know what women's lives are like. When I see these pictures, I mean, okay, all those people who decided Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, there was no bloody difference. Gee, I bet they're eating their words now. When they look at those 
phalanxes of blokes making decisions about women's reproductive rights, about the climate, about education, about health care. I mean, no woman in the room at all. This is a disaster for American women. Texas already has the highest maternal mortality rate in the Western world. What a terrible thing to have happened. We And we are now facing a situation where the women who are in housing stress in their old age were made promises. They were told, you go and look after the kids and do that kind of stuff and you can work a bit if you want to, but, you know, we'll take care of the big decisions and don't you worry, we'll look after you. Well, every woman living out of her car in her old age is an absolute finger pointed at those men saying, you didn't look after our interests. You failed us badly and we need to be there making sure that that never happens again. The, that, that message, Jane, is the most sort of compelling take home from your book and it, it strikes fear in our hearts as we read it. But you do end on a relatively cautiously optimistic note, mm-hmm. I would suggest, and you say, I don't believe half of the human race will ever be as easy to intimidate and control as they once were. Mm-hmm. And that gives all of us a... a, a shot in the arm of, you know, optimism, I guess. Well, I think one of the things that gives me enormous hope is, in fact, the Me Too movement. Because, yes, I know it's not perfect. If you want women to be perfect, I keep saying, nothing will change. We're not perfect. We will make mistakes. Things, some people will take things too far or not go far enough and all that sort of stuff. That's what happens. But basically, the Me Too movement is wonderful because what it has done, and it's social media that has allowed this to happen, it has allowed women to break the silence about the things that have happened to them in their lives. And what that does, and what is so powerful about that, is when you shatter the silence, you make the world a little safer for the vulnerable and a little less safe for those who would uh, exploit their power. If you keep the silence going, it does the opposite. It makes the, li- the world safer for predators and less safe for the vulnerable. This is a gift for everyone. I look at my two grandchildren. I've got a grandson and a granddaughter. And whilst I would hate any kind of sexual humiliation, harassment or um, uh, assault to happen to my granddaughter, of course, um, I look at my grandson and I think, but equally, I would hate to think that he grew up to, to believe that it was okay for him to behave like that. And so by making the world, uh, drawing that very strong boundary about what women will and will not accept, what is reasonable, and also what young men, because Kevin Spacey, of course, was caught up in this as well, um, will accept, that is an entirely good thing. And it is really calling the powerful to account and holding them to account. And I think that's why we're getting this big pushback against women's rights, LGBTQI rights, people of colour, all that kind of thing. The People who just assumed that they were going to be the boss of everything are realising they can't make that assumption anymore and they're very angry about that. Um, But I don't think they're going to win. It'll be a nasty fight, but I don't think they're going to win. Jane Caro there, joining Caro and Corrie in episode 73. Now, in episode 63, Annabelle Crabb was our guest. The episode was called The M Word and you're about to find out why. Yeah. Annabelle, over to you. You've got a recipe. Indeed, you have an I entire do. book of them. But I would do. you like to choose one of your recipes well, out of special guests? Chose something sweet. Look, there are there are heaps of um, well, it's so ridiculous. There are heaps of interesting recipes in this. One of the ones that's really going off at the moment is Wendy's controversial recipe, breakfast recipe for crumpets with uh, Vegemite mustard 
butter and flat leaf parsley, all mashed up to become a kind of savoury butter on a crumpet. Now, she told me that she was making up this thing. That is seriously And I just thought, that is disgusting and I'm not eating that. And I just, just absolutely savaged her by email for months, just going, oh, yeah, still making your awful crumpets, are you? <laughs> anyway, she made them for me at the shoot and I ate about five of them. I cannot even tell you how delicious they are. That is, I mean, anyway, I'm just saying that that recipe is there. Park that. My mum's one... a savoury crumpet eater. She has salt yes. and pepper, though. Yes, my, yeah. well, my grandparents yeah. introduced Seriously, me to that. I love that. The combination of those ingredients, I'm just, I'm just saying, do not rule it out. It is... We will. You will it will we'll change it. your mind. Anyway, so uh, the one that I want to talk about today, though, is this, and it's great at Christmas time, um, so I mention it. Um, it's also great post-Halloween uh, because it uses up so much pumpkin. So this is a sticky You know my thoughts about Halloween, Annabelle, ginger- but that's all right. Well, I mean, seriously, last year you can't beat them, we, had them. A, we had a procurement issue with pumpkins where um, various members of our household bought pumpkins. Uh, I'm not going to name them, uh, but (laughs) they bought Queensland Blues and were like, let's carve these with the kids. And I'm like, you cannot carve a Queensland Blue. Like you need – you you need an angle grinder. They're just too tough, and you can't scoop the flesh out. So blaming Jeremy for this? I I didn't name the household member. Um, So – then I had all these pumpkins under the kitchen table, just knocking around. And so I was just thinking, how can I use them up? So I made pumpkin hummus quite a lot. That's good. Um, and then I'd been making this recipe of Nigella Lawson's, which is of sticky um, gingerbread. So it's not like a gingerbread man type gingerbread. It's like a ginger cake, but really dark and rich. It's got treacle in it. It's got golden syrup. It's got um, fresh ginger. It's got ground ginger. It's really, and then dark sugar as well. So it's really dark and rich and absolutely delicious. And I thought, what about if I put some pumpkin puree into there? Because I was just thinking, (laughs) I've got all this pumpkin. So in it went. I just sort of zhuzhed it up a bit and, and changed some of the proportions. And the result is brilliant. Like it's it's got a real festive air to it because of the spices. Um, it's got ground allspice in it. It's got ginger, obviously, and a little bit of cinnamon. And it's so rich. And I know that it's wrong to say moist even around cakes, but, I mean, that is what this thing is. And it is – I'm sorry, when did moist become a bad word? Oh, yeah. Look, see, no, it's a divisive word. Someone once wrote this hilarious thing on the internet that someone sent me, and it was like a suicide note from the word moist. <laughs> And it was just, this word is just saying, look, I'm a perfectly reasonable word with a person, perfectly reasonable and now meaning. now I've been attacked. And now I'm just despised. People just hate me. Okay, so Annabelle, what do you call a cake that is moist? It's really, it's it's hard. It's like finding a word that rhymes with orange. There is no other word that does the right thing. You can say that it's rich and that it's... Yes. I don't know. Like, you can't wet. say it's wet. That's not right either, is it? I mean... Let me know if you think of anything because I, you know, I have used the M word in this recipe because I I couldn't think of anything else. Um, and you don't need to serve it with anything because it's so nope, absolutely not that word. So you give it a bit of a dust if you want um, of some just icing sugar on top just to make it look like it's covered with freshly fallen snow. But it's the sort of thing that you sort of like. Oh, that's a sort of dark, plain looking cake. Take a bite and you just 
you eat Yum. the whole thing. Well, yeah. rather than reading it out now, what we'll do is we'll pop it in the show notes. Show so notes. That, so that is another reason for everybody to subscribe rather than just piggybacking on someone else's um, iPhone or whatever you're doing to listen to this podcast. I've also included some um, a bit of guidance on how to make a gluten-free version, which I have done uh, oh, very, very successfully with this cake. Yeah, some and cakes it's a, work with and gluten-free it's a moist flour, cake, others don't. Everyone, it's, it's a moist, it's super moist cake. It's, We're not calling it wet. <laughs> I love that. It was side note from the word moist. Annabelle Crab there joining Caro and Corrie with a great recipe from her book, Special Guest Recipes for the Happily Imperfect. And you'll find that recipe in our show notes. Thanks for joining us for this little bonus episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm producer Jane Neild. I will be back with Corrie and Caro next week for a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. Listener.